so happy to see so many folk coming, as Lynn said, at very short notice. And uh, perhaps because one or two people are going to still arrive, we'll see. Um, I'd just like to invite us all to take just really two or three minutes to sit quietly to begin, and then I'll kind of pick up more of the theme that um, I'd like to engage with. But uh, if, you're, if you're not familiar with uh, sort of meditation practice, then just take a moment to sit quietly and connect with wherever you are and maybe just notice what it's like for you to be sitting here on the earth and beneath the sky to be a human being just as you are. And including the sounds of people moving and arriving and equally the movements of your own thoughts and feelings in the kind of open space of just right now, just right here.
So I was just saying, I'm actually very touched to see uh, so many people here, and I'm really appreciative of uh, Lynn and CIMC uh, uh, sort of uh, responding to my relatively last-minute uh, request or expression of interest, and also to the um, there may be some here from the uh, the under 35 sangha who also were going to be meeting at this time, and um, thank you for. I hope offering freely the space. I, I don't know quite how that happened, but uh, however, however it happened, thank you, thank you. And I, I, I hope this is, uh, although not what was perhaps until a few days ago planned for what would be happening at this time for you. I hope this is something that will be relevant and meaningful. And for me, yeah, I'm really glad to have an opportunity to be having a conversation about the uh, the territory that I would like to speak about. Dharma practice was for me always something about uh, caring for our world, caring for life, caring for well-being of myself, of each other, of everything that uh, comprises our world. And I imagine that uh, some of the things I'm going to speak about today are, are things that are not perhaps news to you, that you'll be as aware of as I am of the areas of concern that I want to speak to, and other things will maybe be something you're not so familiar with or maybe you haven't explored in yourself, and that in the last, um, as, as Lynn said, in the last eight, in fact nine months now it seems, I've found myself drawn to engage with a, having spent the last 30 years devoted to Dharma practice essentially and not really doing much else, um, have in the last nine months been very much involved with a, a movement, Extinction Rebellion, that has arisen in response to the circumstance of our world. And I use the word circumstance really uh, consciously because we could say there's a situation and it's kind of neutral, isn't there? And it's sort of, it's a situation. We could also say that it's a catastrophic emergency. Or we could say it's a unknown circumstance of what we can't quite tell what's happening here. We maybe don't know. We maybe feel confused. And I think that's all really understandable. I think as Dharma practitioners, it's natural, understandable, we are concerned and that we care. This is a large part of what we might engage with in terms of practice, to be concerned about suffering, to be concerned about well-being. And the situation of our world is, is unprecedented. The situation we're in the midst of is a situation that humanity has never encountered before. And it's not easy to look at this, it's not easy to turn towards this, but Dharma practice is concerned with turning towards what is true, with looking at, with understanding, with engaging with and dealing with that which may be challenging or hard to bear, but nonetheless requires us to acknowledge and respond to. So how do we respond when we hear the news that we may hear, that I imagine you hear, about the environmental degradation 
taking place in our planet, about the dramatic changes in our climatic conditions and the impact that that is having and the projections of where that is going in the relatively near-term future. How do we respond to this? I imagine you... Please come in. I imagine you're very aware in coming along here about this. Yeah, I imagine you've thought about it, you've reflected on it. To contemplate that we're seeing a shift in the conditions that support life on Earth that is generated by human activity. That our human society and the way it is currently operating and functioning and the way we are collectively living is bringing about an unprecedented destabilization of our climate and an accelerating environmental destruction. Ecosystems and species under threat. Around the globe, extreme weather events, countless families and communities losing their homes, their food security. Extreme weather events destroying homes, property, food. Species loss, melting polar ice caps, the toxic or the poisoning of rivers and lakes with toxic chemicals, degrading soil fertility. And the oceans choking in plastic. It's kind of to talk about such things is not easy. To, to, to actually sit and think, oh, to, to let myself hear this is not easy. You know, the Buddha's Vinaya for the, for the monastic community, which also in a certain way applies to anyone who would seek to be a dedicated follower of his path. Certain aspects, one of the aspects of the Vinaya, the, uh, the rules for the, for the dedicated practitioners is that if one is visiting somewhere, one should leave it when leaving in at least as good a condition as one found it when one came. And as a kind of an instruction or an invitation for our species, as sort of, uh, we could say, a community visiting this planet, it seems we're failing to fulfill this particular and really understanding, understandable and important training condition. It's like our shared home is under threat, born of our shared activity. And it's easy to feel overwhelmed and it's easy to feel worried and it's easy to feel hopeless and not know how to respond and I was very deeply touched and struck in um, the latter part of last year when I first encountered the movement Extinction Rebellion and started to read and follow and look at some of what was being expressed and articulated. And it seemed to me that there was a, a protest movement that had drawn upon 
the real depths of spiritual wisdom and psychological understanding that our world has to offer and integrated them in to a courageous and passionate call to act and to respond in the face of an emergency. An emergency of climate and ecological devastation and destruction that we're that we're facing. And it was a kind of a curious process of thinking, wow, this makes sense. This seems to seems to speak to me, and it seems to speak to me in terms of what I understand my practice to be about. It was kind of like at first, well, that looks good, but can can these people actually do what they're saying? They're talking about how to go about what what they're calling for to call for non-violent civil disobedience, which is the the fundamental vehicle that this movement is engaged in using, and. Um, and I began to explore it and to see, oh, okay, so what's it like to go and stand on a bridge as I did with 6,000 of us on five bridges in London in November last year and just say, okay, we're going to stand here and we're going to stand here because this will make an impact. This will get the attention of the media, of the public, of the government. And it does. It's remarkable. And I'll stand there even if the police come and say, you must leave. And at the point where they do, choose to not leave and be arrested. And it's interesting how that kind of has flown into an exploration of something that, for me, has been incredibly inspiring and incredibly powerful to see what a group of people can do if they are committed to something they care about and to act from love, to act from a sense of love at all times. This was one of the elements of Extinction Rebellion that spoke to me very clearly that there's no blaming and shaming to understand we're in a situation which we're all part of and it doesn't make sense to point the finger or to blame anyone else or ourselves in fact of course we need to take responsibility we need to hold accountability where appropriate but to understand we're somehow all in this together And so some of the actions I've been involved with involved locking myself to other people to blockade the entrance to the BBC, to um, call on it, to actually report the truth, to actually say what the science is telling us. Because the, the news media isn't. There's this kind of idea that, you know, you don't tell people bad news because it might scare them. You know, Leonard Cohen said, there's some things you just don't tell the children. And it's a bit like that. But actually, we're adults. We need to know. We need to know. It's a bit like the Buddha's teaching of dukkha. Like, at some level, it seems like nobody wants to hear the truth of dukkha, that there is suffering. But actually, isn't it the case that there's something of a relief when it's spoken? I remember when I first heard the Dharma. And it's like someone says there is dukkha, and it's like, yeah, yeah, I know that. But that we can actually say it together and acknowledge it somehow empowers us to respond to it. A, a woman, a friend and practitioner who I know was wanting to talk with her teenage son about her concerns about climate change and climate destabilization really is what we're talking about. And she said she was really, she told me she was really sort of worried. She didn't want to upset her, her teenage son. And she started talking and he looks at her and he nods. She says, and, and then after a little while, he said to her, he said, Mum, I know. 
But actually then it's a relief because now we can talk about it. It's like we need to be able to talk about the truth of our life, of our circumstance, dukkha in all of its forms. And the actions that I've taken with Extinction Rebellion have always been done in groups with friends, with other people similarly committed to enter into a kind of a transgression of what's normally been the rules in a way that completely changes what that means and what that involves is something remarkable and powerful and has profound parallels, it seems to me, in terms of what actually Dharma practice is involved with, which also involves actually shifting the paradigms we have been working within and operating under internally. And it seems to me that nonviolent civil disobedience is a way in which what Dharma practice does for us individually, internally, actually becomes a practice of how we can do that collectively with the consciousness of the whole society, the shared field of awareness, denial, and responsiveness, and all of that. And there are consequences for people who choose to step outside of the normal rules. And it's very interesting to see that when choosing for myself and for many friends to say, actually, I will do something that will be regarded as a breaking of the law, that will be treated by the state and by the police and by the courts and the justice system as, as criminal activity, to do so in a way in which one realizes, actually, this is for something that is so important that it's okay to take a risk with one's liberty, with one's physical comfort, with one's um, privileges and material possessions that may be taken from one as a result. And it's scary. It's scary indeed. And for myself, in fact, it puts my whole capacity to come to the US again at risk. Currently being subject to prosecutions, which if I'm found guilty within it, maybe I won't, in the current atmosphere of this uh, US administration, be allowed to return to this country. That was part of my urgency for wanting to use this opportunity. Um, the first of the trials I face is in two weeks' time. And it may be at that point, this door will close. And so some sense of urgency on my part to say, okay, well, while I'm here, and while I can't be prevented from being here, I want to use this opportunity to speak. Because I also, as well as it's scary and it's difficult to be feeling that oppressive force of the state being applied on one, at the same time there's a deep peace for me. I feel a sense of of wholeness and in integrated um, sort of, uh, uh, what the word would be. It's like at some level to say no to what calls me in terms of action would leave a deeper dissonance in my heart than the challenge that is presented to my life by the choices I've made. And I feel at peace with the consequences. There's grief. There's, I, as I drove from IMS today, I, there was this part of me was thinking, against, it may be that against my will, this is the last time I would have come and taught at that centre where I've been teaching for 25 years, where I lived for two years, a quarter of a century ago. In fact, with my wife, Catherine, we lived there immediately after we got married. It was our first home together. So, you know, but less than a couple of years. I was there as the resident teacher and... 
And th that's when I first came to CIMC around that time as well. I haven't been here or taught here um, so often, but uh, I've always appreciated the connection with the centre here and with Larry and Narayan and others who've been part of this and uh, a number of you who I've known for, for many years actually uh, through retreats and through IMS and through here. And, and lovely to see familiar faces here. Um, And this April, and the culmination of the the development of and the the growing of the the movement, I was part of a a mass action uh, climate protest in London that was also taking place around the world. The International Rebellion we called, and I was part of the the crew that occupied Waterloo Bridge for for seven days. And um, there were a number of Dharma practitioners amongst us, of course, many who weren't. But it was interesting to find out most of us didn't go in wearing a hat saying. I'm a Buddhist or I'm a Dharma practitioner. But over time, I came to see that there were many who were and who, like myself, hadn't announced it up front. But in fact, to do what we were doing it and to hold the the peaceful, non-violent element in the face of being subject to considerable pressure and force from the police and also from sometimes aggressive um, or unhappy sort of passers-by, Actually, it's real practice. It takes practice to be able to do what the idea of non-violent or peaceful civil disobedience suggests. And um, with these many friends, we, we caused disruption, peaceful disruption, but disruption nonetheless, a lot of trouble. In fact, millions upon millions of dollars worth of disruption. And a lot of people unhappy about that. And yet, in the face of an unfolding emergency... Something has to be done. And this is what seems to make sense to myself and to a growing number of people. And for me, even in the face of being prosecuted for this action, it feels to me like it is my practice that calls me to do this, that says, actually, this is your dharma right now. I have a situation in my life where I can. For different people, maybe that's not what their choice would be. And to be clear from the outset, there are so many different ways we can engage with what we care about and what we see that needs to be done. And I'm not saying that my choices are what someone else's choices should be, but we all need to know we are making choices in our action or our inaction. We are making choices. And our choices to act or to not act always have an effect. And always they are part of the outcomes. They never determine them or control them, but they will be part of them. In 2018, you're probably aware it came out last year, the IPCC report, the UN body charged with reporting on the status of the world in regard to climate change. Something we've known about since um, the 60s, at least for some. And since the 90s, we've all known about it. It's been in major world news since the 90s. Or possibly the 80s, it might even have been. Um, 30, 40 years we've known about this. And the report of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, said in no uncertain terms, un unequivocal statement, that we are heading for an extremely catastrophic outcome at the moment. We are not maintaining what we undertook collectively and in various state governments to um, to do in terms of the Paris Accords and the Kyoto Agreement. We're not actually even following those which we would see now as minimal 
steps towards what needs to be done. That we have just 12 years before it's too late to do anything about this, to avert a climate destabilization-induced catastrophe. And the, 20, the report that came out this, this year in um, April, the um, IPBES, the United Nations Report on um, Biodiversity, Species and um, Ecosystems, reporting massive loss of living systems, living species, ecosystems, habitats, to the extent a million species are in threat of extinction. A million species. Currently, it's happening. They're seeing the trajectory playing out. And what's interesting about these reports is they are accumulated by drawing on the combined wisdom of, of all the governments and all the researchers and all the experts all around the world. And it takes them two or three years talking about all the research that was done and completed three years ago based on data generated four and five and six years ago that then they finally report it and say, oh, this is what's happening. This is what we see. But in fact, to get that many people to agree, they have to actually find the most, in a way, uncontroversial articulation of what they have to say. Twelve years to get the changes made, actually, a lot of the reports would have suggested we need to act more quickly than that. The report suggests we need to be net greenhouse gas zero by 2050. In fact, research coming out more recently suggests we have to get it down much more quickly than that or it will be too late. That the conditions are already in place to be heading for the 2% threshold that that report, which was conservative and out of date by the time it was published, said would already be something we don't want to contemplate in terms of the devastation of our, of our world. And just in terms of that, to say that um, at 2% degree, two de sorry, did I say 2% before? 2 degrees um, change, 2 degrees Celsius change. So what's that, about 3 Fahrenheit? Thereabouts um, of average global temperature change. The grain crops that we rely on to provide the basic sustenance for the vast human global population will fail. And there will be famine. There's already famine in some parts of the world. What happens when there is famine is there is migration, there is re conflict over resources, and very easy that follows with the breakdown of civil, so civil society. What happened in Syria preceding the war was actually climate-induced famine, migration, war, and then, of course, you will have heard of the the refugees desperately trying to leave the country and actually tragically being turned away in many occasions by wealthy Western countries. It's not something that's coming towards us. It's something that's already happening. Pacific Islands, where the, the whole country is about um, you know, 12 to 16 inches above sea level, are seeing the effect already in some small islands, atolls having to be abandoned already because it doesn't take much to shift that environment, that ecosystem to be no longer sustainable. And so what we find is that in fact it's not just 
plants and animals, creatures and things that are at risk of extinction, but also the human species itself. This is what some of the reports say. When we look at what the IPCC put out, it projected what's going to happen in the next five years, four or five years ago. But we've actually got the data now. When you look and say, oh no, those projections were inadequate and understating it considerably. I don't, I'm not doing the science thing um, in terms of wanting to lay all that out for you. You can follow this up if you wish. I would suggest you might wish to um, if you want to know for yourself. But clearly what we are seeing is something that is not sort of taking the optimistic, hopeful track in the range that we've spoken to. It's actually going the other way already. We're already way above the threshold for parts per million of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere that we've been hoping to hold it within in order to preserve um, a manageable degree of destabilization because it's already happening. It's not that there isn't going to be that, but a manageable, survivable level. Two of the things that the IPCC report also doesn't take into account are what's called feedback loops, in which case you see that at a certain level of greenhouse gas emission and temperature rise, certain things start to kick in. And the two primary ones, maybe well known, are the, um, the melting of the Siberian tundra in the, um, in the Arctic and northern, sort of high northern regions prior to the Arctic Circle which as it melts is releasing and beginning to release vast amounts of methane, which is frozen in the permafrost that's been there for thousands of years. And as it releases, it's an incredibly potent greenhouse gas. It doesn't last as long in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, but it amplifies and escalates the greenhouse gas heating effect much more intensely. And so that's the thing where the melting is actually speeding itself up. By melting, it's feeding back into itself. And the other sort of well-spoken, there's, there's more, but the other particular one I'll name is with the melting of polar ice caps and massive reduction in the amount of ice at the poles being recognized and measured, and some of it isn't ever going to come back. But with that, what happens is that where it used to previously reflect sunlight back out into the atmosphere, now the dark earth or the dark ocean is absorbing all that energy. And so again, it's a feedback loop, which means it accelerates the process. And what's recognized within this is that there are tipping points. The, the science is now showing us there are tipping points, which mean that we will get to points, places in the process where it cannot be reversed even if we make the changes eventually because we see how serious it's got we won't be able to do anything about it some of the discussions with melting of some of the the, the um the massive ice flows in the antarctic is that at a certain point their own momentum will just continue the process and again i'm not going to try and articulate the science of it but it's like it's an extremely serious situation and some of the reports, again, as I said, that we may be at risk of extinction as a human species. Now, the report that, well, one report that has a lot of very good science in it suggests a 1 in 20 chance of human extinction. Now, we might think, 1 in 20, I, I, was, I was getting worried for a moment. 1 in 20 sounds quite good, doesn't it? You know, that's... Well, it's, it sounds quite good if you're, um, you know, 
I don't know, playing cards or, um, you know, wondering about whether you might, um, you know, your, your sports team might win. But like one in 20 is like, would we put our children and our grandchildren on a plane if we knew it had a one in 20 chance of coming down? No, we wouldn't. And actually, this planet, it's like, this is, this is a vehicle where our children and our grandchildren can't get off this thing. There isn't somewhere else, and the, I think the uh, the Mars fantasies are are not going to be the resolution here. And we're putting our children and our grandchildren on this plane. At the moment, it's happening. I don't have children myself, but of course, the children of our of our collective human family and the children of all the creatures and species and living things we share this world with. This is a lot to hear, to take in. And I'd just like to invite you to take a moment to breathe and to feel what it's like for you to hear this spoken. And again, many of you may know the truth of this and have reflected and studied. All of us will have heard some of it before. But just to take a moment to feel and notice what it's like for you to hear this right now. To breathe, to feel to allow yourself to whatever degree is okay or possible for you to be touched by this. And I'm really open if anyone has a word or two they would say to name or to speak. You don't have to, but if anyone wants to say, what's it like to hear this? What's your emotional response? How does your heart respond to this? How does it feel to be listening? And there may be any number of responses. It might be anything from skepticism to despair. There is something really important about coming together. And I want to say, because I, I really respect and appreciate it, there will be people here who will know more about the science and who could possibly explain some of the nuances of what I've referred to broadly, more precisely, more accurately, and more usefully articulate to you. And this isn't, I'm not endeavouring to do that, and I'm sorry if I've done it in any way that is misrepresenting, underrepresenting, or overrepresenting, but I have seen enough of the science and read enough of the reports and talked to enough people who have also been involved in this work for many, many years to feel that basically we are clear enough that if we don't change the way our society is functioning and our world is operating, we threaten our very collective existence here. Now, exactly how we yeah, detail that, I'm, um, I'm, I'm aware that there are many ways we could have that conversation. And so there's something about just stopping and feeling whatever our response is, whether we know it well and we've felt it deeply or we're hearing it the first time and we're just kind of probably not really able to take that in because that's kind of natural the first time we hear something like this. But to feel your body as you sit here, to notice how your body is in any way it might be affected or not affected, and just to know that that is so would be my invitation. This is dukkha that we're talking about here. And the Buddha's teaching dukkha, that which is hard to bear. That which is part of life indeed, but that which our practice calls us to acknowledge and engage in and respond to. And 
There is a cause and an end, and a path we could find. With every of the noble, tr- with all of each of the the four noble truths, there's not just the understanding, but then there's the response. So that with the truth of suffering, there is the uh, of dukkha, there is the associated um, response. It's to be understood with the the cause of suffering, tanha, craving, it's to be let go of. And so too, this climate and ecological dukkha calls for a response, calls for a response. And it seems to me, in terms of understanding it, that we're talking about something best, or perhaps not best, but that could be usefully viewed through the lens of addiction, like a collective social sort of and special addiction in which the doctors are telling us actually if you keep doing that it's going to kill you and we keep doing it and we could say are we stupid um which is often the response or do we not care which would seem to be a reasonable conclusion or it might be oh actually i think we might be addicted and addiction is a useful model here because it also, the, the wisdom of the recovery world, of which I only know through um, contact with people who've been in it, it's not something I know myself, there's some real wisdom in that which actually bears out my understanding of what might be needed and useful here and that goes, sort of parallels also what I've learned in and through Extinction Rebellion. And Ex- Extinction Rebellion is named, it's a kind of a stark name because it's like, if we're heading for extinction, actually rebellion, given the system is taking us there, rebelling, breaking out of that system, seems to be not just a logical response, but actually the ethical response in, the, in that situation. And so, one of the principles of, um, of the recovery world is the wisdom of being able to be honest and say, actually, look, it's killing us. Just actually sit and face that. Oh, it's killing us. Or it's going to be killing our children or their children. And the children of the creatures around us and the children of the trees and the plants and the living ecosystems around us. There's a humility that's called for here to see actually, you know, all the attempts both in terms of science and politics to set about with solutions, all of our individual efforts, whether through activism or other channels, for all that they may have been important, useful, good, the bottom line is emissions are still rising, the temperature is still rising, the trajectory is accelerating. That counts as failure in this context. It counts as failure. And governments today are still supporting and promoting the industries and the activities that are creating the problem, that are amplifying and accelerating the issue. And so there's something about, also in in that understanding in the recovery world, and again, excuse me if you know more about that world than I do, because it's quite, that wouldn't be so difficult in one sense. I don't know it so well, but what I do know... One of the other things is that sense of needing to actually name and call out what's happening and say, with one, with those we care about and that we love, to actually say, look, we need to address this, to kind of 
the process of intervention, of actually we need to cut across this trajectory of what's happening by not continuing to enable it. And sometimes in what's called tough love, which means you actually do things that might be really painful and difficult for someone you care about. Causing disruption and non-violent civil disobedience has one of its ways in which it is potent as a force for social change through causing disruption. Doesn't look like something we're going to feel okay about doing. Almost everyone I know, including myself, when first contemplating things, you can't cause trouble to people who aren't causing the problem, who aren't the ones most at fault. It's okay to, you know, to target the petroleum industry. And okay, so, you know, when I was part of a group of people and there were nine of us, we, we wanted to blockade the conference venue in which the, um, sort of senior CEOs and government ministers of um, petroleum producing, exporting and sort of importing countries were meeting and it was it was very different than blocking a road where people were unhappy with it. People seemed really happy with the idea that we'd go and try and block it. We actually glued ourselves to the doors of the conference with super glue. So they couldn't get through the doors without talking to us. <laughs> because otherwise they just someone comes and drags you away. And so we were there for four hours, and every time a person went in or out, we said, think about your children. Think about our children. What are you doing here? Because the conference was clearly set up to support the international industry to find further ways to exploit as yet undiscovered or recently discovered fossil fuel reserves, despite the fact that we know already that if we burn the stuff we've already got, we're going to go way over the thresholds that will enable us to... Um, maintain anything in the way of a sustainable ecology and, and, and world. So there's no point in finding more and digging more of that stuff out of the ground. And people are out there making a lot of money doing it. Causing disruption is um, something we do in retreats doesn't look like we're all calm and people coming on meditation actually when we choose to sit down and meditation and say i'm not going to get up because i'm a little bit uncomfortable i'm not going to go off and because i've just suddenly remembered that i needed to write a note to my friend or something it's like actually disrupting our habitual behavior patterns as part of what we do in meditation. we don't call it that but that's actually part of what we do we create a situation where collectively we support each other to disrupt what we understand to be dysfunctional patterns of behavior. And so there's a parallel there in what nonviolent civil disobedience involved is is um engaged with. And it seems to me that the situation, again I use that word situation, I mean if you use the word crisis and the word emergency too many times it starts to become meaningless. Any word loses its potency when we repeat it too many times. I don't know if you notice that. It's like, actually, we need to stop and understand, oh, what do we mean by that? This situation of profound vulnerability to the consequences of our own collective activity. Is at this situation, which I would describe as a crisis, the climate and ecological crisis and emergency, is at its heart a crisis of spirit? A crisis of disconnection born of failing to see and to understand and to treasure our sacred and inseparable interconnection with all of life. 
to treat things as something we can exploit for our own welfare without worrying about the impact in that locality. To imagine that we can throw things away? You know, we've, how, how long have we grown up with the idea we can throw things away? As if there is somewhere that is away? Because what we're seeing right now is actually there isn't, is there? It comes back because there isn't somewhere away. And the plastic that we've thrown away has come back and it's in our bodies and in the bodies of our food and in the bodies of our children. We didn't throw it away because there isn't a way. There isn't somewhere that's a way. Except perhaps briefly and temporarily. And so far as we have failed to value other creatures, other species, other communities, other localities, other ecologies in the same way we value ourselves, so far as we've failed to do that, so far as we've made that breach, we've failed to understand our interdependence and our interconnection. And that when we do something to this world, we do it to ourselves. When you do something to another, we do it to ourselves. And this collective self-harm is an expression of a spiritual sickness, a spiritual malaise, which is profound and deep. It wasn't easy to spend a week on a bridge in London. No water supply, no bathrooms. It was really hot during the days. Surprisingly for England, so we weren't quite prepared for that. People had to go and find sun cream. It was really cold at nights because the skies were clear. And it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable sometimes to make a choice to stay in the place to which we are committed. And yet those of us who have practiced meditation have learnt a lot about what that involves and what maybe comes through the capacity to meet what is not comfortable, in the service of something more important, something we care about more deeply than just our immediate physical pleasure or comfort or ease. And making a choice through such a commitment to stay, to face arrest, to face being taken to prison cells, to be prosecuted perhaps as we are now being, there's a, there's a comfort in the shared dedication. There's a comfort that comes in the shared activity. And as, again, many of you will know what it's like to sit together in a group and feel that shared connection or to have been on a period of practice with others and feel the way it makes a bond and a connection because we've gone through something together. Again, in the service of something that we hold as a higher value than just, you know, having a good time. And uh, and we were touched also by each other's courage and by the, the children who came. We brought trees and plants and parked them on the bridge. And uh, what was amazing was, of course, that after a little while, the bees and the butterflies and the birds found that this thing was a living bridge suddenly. And it was so sweet in the middle of the city in a place where there's normally cars just pouring over it all day. It started to become an alive place. And the children that visited too, so sweet. And yet, in the midst of physical privation and challenge, and in a way the impact 
of the police coming and arresting us and being told, you've got to get rid of them, coming in their dozens and their hundreds. And every time there being more of us willing to stay there and even be arrested than there were of them who could carry us away, which takes them four or five at a time. Then they need a van and then they need a somewhere to put you and they ran out of places to take us quite quickly. And the wonderful Father Giles at the local church at one end of the bridge, Waterloo, St. John's of Waterloo Church, offered us the crypt as a place with a, with a toilet and a, a little dark space that those people on the night shift who were holding the bridge through the night and staying awake could sleep during the day. And it had a kitchenette as well. It was like, wow, suddenly really simple things become luxury in a situation like that. We hear the clear and overwhelming scientific consensus if we read, if we look, if we listen, urging or calling for urgent and uncompromising action. We do actually have the responses that can be made. The possibilities are there, but they are not what is being chosen or acted on. And we see this isn't happening. What's needed to be done to provide a world for our children and theirs and our communities to save this world from devastation. And it's being disregarded. These options, these pathways aren't being taken. Disregarded, de denied or ignored in the pursuit of profit, it seems, or convenience, or just our addiction to consumption. And it's like, this is hard to bear. Again, I would really invite you to just Go slowly with this and all of you are going to be in a different place. So I may have said more than was needed or not quite enough or maybe for some just about the right amount and I would wish I could calibrate it for each of you and have the conversation that might go a little bit more into the particulars in whichever way each of you might wish. But that can happen, just not in this time, if you're interested to have that conversation to explore that the the urge to turn away is really understandable the urge to pull away to not really face this and it seems to me that dharma teachings ask us to turn towards this painful contemplation to actually open our hearts to what we feel in response and fear grief anger horror numbness denial confusion hopelessness, alarm, so many responses we can have and will have. I found myself being shaken out of the, the kind of sense of frustrated, hopeless grief hopelessness and grief about knowing that I had no or feeling like I had no voice having been engaged in activism over many many years having at a certain point kind of stepped out of activism because it felt like so many people in activism were so overwhelmed by so much anger and reactivity that it was actually toxic and I kind of got into spiritual practice to try and sort that out at least in one place here you know think globally act locally okay well this is as local as it gets <laughs> 
there, the old slogan from the 80s and maybe before, but certainly when I was more engaged in such things more directly in the 80s. Um, one of the wisdoms that touched me when I saw and read about Extinction Rebellion and um, the principles that the, the movement is organizing around and I wondered, do they have the, because it takes practice to do this, but I was inspired even just to see it was actually no blaming or shaming anyone. Not those who seem to be the conscious, intentional perpetrators who are benefiting, not those, including ourselves, who might be failing to do as much as we would wish we were able to do. To contemplate the situation, contemplating the actions of those who seem to be seeking and obtaining vast material gain and benefit from harmful and destructive activity and our own limitations, the ways we struggle. I struggle too with the compromises and the, the, um, the conflicts of the choices to be made. I actually didn't want to open this, but I was thirsty. And then at some point it's like, okay, I'm going to drink out of a little plastic bottle. That's what I've got here. I should have brought the cup. Can I go down and get the cup? I didn't. And I actually, having not decided until I opened it without quite noticing I was doing it, and then I noticed I was doing it, I thought, damn, I've opened it. Okay, it's an open bottle of water now. There's another one. There's another one. And thank you for providing me water. I'm not complaining. I needed some. <laughs> but um, so many things we do, all of us. And it's really important in contemplating and turning towards us that we recognize and understand. Dharma teachings point out very clearly it does not serve to identify with and act out on anger on judgment on blame towards others or to ourselves and we may need to seek support from friends to talk about our responses because we can have and that doesn't dharma teachings don't say we shouldn't have such feelings anger or deep feeling of remorse for some of one's own choices or pain around the the intractable conflicts that we're required to resolve even for me to travel here in a plane, and yet also knowing that if I didn't, there's a chance that more than one of my students would come and see me instead, and then that hasn't got us anywhere. In fact, quite a few might. And so better I come, at least for now, it seems. But then somehow that has to change. To actually talk about and share and feel with each other. It's so important. And that's part of to have a conversation like this in this community because I hope that that might lead to you being able to have those conversations with each other about just how it is to be where we are in this world, in our lives at this time. It's also so important to seek out nourishment, to seek out what will bring the, 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 the balancing of, 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 of nourishment, of well-being, of joy, to, to spend time with what we love and what uplifts and delights our heart, not as a denial or an avoidance, but recognizing we need balance. We need to, we need to also turn towards why it is that we care about this world, because it is, it is beautiful. It is lovely. The beings we encounter are precious and blessed and sacred. And life, in fact, is also, in whatever ways we know, to let that also be felt. We only feel grief and anger about anything because we care about whatever it is that is the topic of grief in regard to the loss of what we care about 
anger in relationship to the harm to that which we care about. And to also let ourselves feel the care that is the foundation of that. And then find ways to act, to respond, to call for the collective action that is required here and equally to make the individual changes that we are able to make. Both of these are required. But I think it's really important to understand because we live in a, in a society that has become dominated by the idea of individualism and individual action and responsibility and just let people choose without really factoring in the fact that there are very skillful ways of manipulating choice that have been employed by the money-making industries of our culture for a considerable period of time to the considerable detriment of our collective well-being, profound harm through the manipulation of what seems to be choice but isn't. We're in a situation which requires collective, concerted collective action. It's like there's a asteroid being discovered. It's heading towards the planet. It looks like it's very likely to hit it. We need to do something. But it's on the news one day, and then next day they're talking about the Super Bowl. And you go, what? <laughs> Just a moment. Didn't you say that there was an asteroid heading, and it looks like it's probably going to hit this planet? Aren't we still talking about the next day as well, or has the news really moved on? But that's what we see. It moves on. Boom, boom, boom. And then if it was said, well, well, gosh, you know, haven't you built your own shelter yet? You know, haven't you dug your own bunker yet? You know, and it's like, well, actually, that might be a helpful response, but that's actually not what's needed. Something bigger is needed. Something much bigger is needed here. And it is easy to feel frustration and despair when we see that the, the call to change direction is ignored, when we see so much being actively pursued that is amplifying or perpetuating and amplifying the extremeness of the emergency situation. So I'd like to talk a little bit about nonviolent civil disobedience again here because it's something remarkable. What it actually involves is something very much like meditation practice. Just as when I first encountered meditation practice, I said, oh my gosh, here's a way to work with all that reactive stuff inside me and actually start to transform it, which I'd never encountered such a thing until I first did a retreat and thought, oh, oh my gosh, you can actually do that. So too, encountering the understandings and the teaching around nonviolent civil disobedience, it's like, oh, oh, this is a way to work with those same intractable, intractable patterns that operate at a collective social societal level. And one of the foundations is non-judgment. To, to be non-violent means to be non-judgmental, to not blame or shame or judge, to understand we are all part of a toxic system. We are all caught within it, wherever we are, whatever our roles and functions. It's not about one individual. If you took the individual you blame out, someone else would appear in their place. We've seen this so many times. Even if you take a whole sort of um, establishment structure or institution or, or administration out, the next one that turns up ends up replicating the same thing because of the system, the systemic dynamics 
And so that's part of what needs to be addressed. It can't be done at an individual level here. So there's this thing about opening our heart while engaging in something that involves stepping out of the injunctions and the compulsions that we operate within. In meditation, that's what we learn to do. We start off, we end up mostly very judgmental. First of all, angry. When you start practicing, all the people have caused me all this difficulty in my life. It's pretty common. And then after a while, we get a bit more self-awareness. I know, it's me. I'm doing it. Then we're angry with ourselves a lot. Hopefully, ultimately, we realize neither of those responses are useful. So too in this situation. To keep one's heart open is actually essential. And then saying, I'm not going to follow those injunctions that say you must behave this way when I know it is harmful. Nor am I going to listen to those injunctions or compulsions that say you must not act in this way when you know it would be helpful. And this is actually the basis of inner freedom. As a meditator, we learn this. This is the basis of inner freedom, to not be bound to enact the inner patternings and actually to listen to what feels true, wise and compassionate in making choices and acting. When we sat on the bridge and feeling when the times when the police would come towards us in large numbers and they were instructed after their first failure to remove us to use the full force of the law, the, the political and the, 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 the media voices were saying, no, you must get rid of these people. It's quite impactful. Now, I have to confess, and you'll probably be aware, the British police force is a little bit more, we'd say, uh, humane than sometimes what seems to manifest in this country. And that's their, f their first choice of response is not aggression and violence. It can go there, but it doesn't start there generally, or at least more reliably. And yet, to sit in solidarity with a group of people and feel this coming towards us, it's like, wow. The tendency was to kind of bristle and tighten and harden and we practiced and we'd all practiced before relaxing and softening and we even noticed, you know, we started talking about this line where we're blockading the bridge so nothing can get on and the police would come and take us and we'd be sitting there. We were calling it the front line. You know, it's like it's a military metaphor. It's like there's this collision, this confrontation, this battle going on. We're non-violent but it's still somehow martial. And then we realized what that meant. And we, we, we renamed it. We called it the heartline. To help us remember that actually what we're doing here, we are in a confrontation, but we're not making enemies. We're trying not to make enemies here. That we actually are being in a place doing this in vulnerability. Being impacted, but also seeking to have a positive impact. With the that sense of solidarity with people that we're with, including those who appear to be against us. So in solidarity with our friends and communities and the creatures and the ecosystems. And, you know, as the police were arresting us, chanting, police, we love you. We're doing this for your children too. Again and again and again. And seeing, not all of them, but seeing many of them impacted and touched profoundly. How are you doing in terms of listening? Because this is, I'm, I'm finding a little bit more coming out of my mouth than what I, and so it's going a bit more slowly. Are you okay for a little bit more? We fast forward to the solution. 
Yeah, we're not too far away from some of that. <laughs> we're not too far away from some of that. And if someone really needs to use the bathroom, feel free to pop out and come back. But we will pause um, reasonably soon. Um, Nonviolent civil disobedience. I don't know if it's the solution, but it's certainly a part of what's possible here. Because, and I'm... Okay, I'll come back to this. I'll, I'll just go... It gives ordinary people a voice that can't be ignored. If you've written petition or written letters, if you've signed petitions, if you've gone on marches, what you will have noticed, as I have done, is that you can get a million people on the street and it'll get on the news for a day and then it's forgotten and it can be completely ignored. But you get a few thousand people who sit down and don't move and it can't be ignored because it creates disruption. And as soon as you stop and block transport pathways, you're actually starting to participate in the in the power of the economy that runs on money. The voices that get heard have a lot of money. Those of us who don't have no voice unless they can affect that economy. That's what the government listens to. And it's like when you stop transport, you squeeze the pipe through which the money flows. Because money is made by a simple thing as moving things around, buying them cheap, moving where they're plentiful, taking them where they're scarce, selling them there for more. That's your basic way of making profit. I mean, again, anyone with any knowledge could, <laughs> could unpack that in a more complex way, but that's the basic mercantile model that the capitalist thing tends to work on in very simple terms. And as soon as you stop things moving, do you know why? There's a lot of resistance to not building more roads, not building more airports, not doing more of those things, because as soon as you did, you couldn't keep expanding the economy in the way that the current sort of quasi-religious belief of our culture seems to suggest will be our salvation, when in fact it is our, well, I don't want to say damnation, it's certainly our, um, our deep threat. To have a voice that can't be ignored is something remarkable, to find that a few people, relatively speaking, actually have more power than they've ever imagined to understand that we are not disempowered if we are willing to step outside of some of the limitations we've imposed upon ourselves. And it has a remarkable capacity for precipitating social change. You will all know about the uh, civil rights movement in this country, inspired by Rosa Parks, led by Martin Luther King, using the sacrifice of one's comfort, one's privilege, one's liberty. And, of course, in, those, in that situation for many of the, the uh, African-American people and people of color involved in that, they weren't in a position of privilege or liberty, but of oppression, exploitation, and subjugation in all sorts of horrendous ways. But saying, nonetheless, I'll even take a risk with the situation I have that could become worse in the short term in the service of something may make a difference, and in this case, as we know, did, and profoundly, and inspiringly so. And likewise, the um, the Indian independence movement, led by Gandhi in, in India, and the, the, the non-violent activists who sat down in front of the guns of the British colonial army, greatest colonial power of, the, of its time, and who some of w w sat there while subject to extreme violence, and even mortal violence, but kept sitting there or standing there in the face of that. My grandmother, 
I'm one quarter Bengali. My grandmother was there in that movement, part of that movement. She met my grandfather in that movement. Um, so I have some history here, some lineage in that. Research confirms its effectiveness. Erica Chenoweth has a wonderful um, TED talk where she talks about the efficacy of non-violent civil disobedience for bringing about significant structural societal change in the face of intransigent government refusal to move on something. Erica Chenoweth. It's a TED talk. I think it was given in Boulder. Um, yeah, you'll find it quite easily if you Google it. And... Um, Basically, she she found that any movement, non-violent civil disobedience movement, that got 3.5% of the population engaged succeeded. In the last 150 years, anything that got to that succeeded. 3.5% of the population. That means it's all right if a few people don't like you. The unwillingness to do things because somebody might not like it has limited the response in so many situations so many times. And there's a learning that's happening right now. And, you know, when I went to one of my court hearings, a lawyer turned up to help me, who I'd never met before, who had actually been, he'd, he'd been on a bus that was stopped from being able to move in a traffic jam that we'd caused. And he'd been, the driver had said, we're not going anywhere. He'd got out, he walked down to the front, he'd picked up the thing and read it and thought, oh yeah. So it's interesting because disruption is annoying, but it also actually gets people thinking about a topic. And what we've seen really clearly is that it brings into conscious focus the issue. Even if people don't like the fact that you've disrupted them, it gets them thinking about it in a way differently than hearing it on the news. Because it actually becomes real to them. And the fact that people are making a sacrifice touches us. It's a social thing. We know how that works. Firefighters, people who go into burning buildings, we hold them in amazing high regard. We don't, unfortunately, always reward them as well in terms of pay and conditions, but in terms of their moral standing. And anyone who sacrifices themselves or takes risks for the collective good is held up in our society, in our culture, and honoured. And so there's something about this where we, where we also empower the society to respond, and it does in this way. I was arrested four times in that week, and... Um, I have a, this is the second of the trials I'm facing will be for those four offences of just basically choosing not to leave when I was told I must, doing nothing of any significant harm to a city that, although somewhat disrupted, was continuing to function quite well, it seemed, although there was, you know, there was indeed disruption. What was interesting is when we were arrested, we started to talk and we would talk with the officers and actually make friends with them. And it was interesting, once they'd done their business, which was moving us, and we'd done our business, which was choosing not to move until we were arrested, then we were just two human beings in the van. Sometimes we spent a lot of time in the van because some inconsiderate people had blocked the road so you couldn't get anywhere <laughs> in the van. And I was surprised by how much warmth we found because, of course, they have families and children and concern too. And this process of making a connection with the people who you might see otherwise as the opposition is part of the transformative power of non-violent, of peaceful civil disobedience. And it can look many different ways. 
What I would like to say is I'm not suggesting that everyone has to do what I have done or what they've seen anyone else do. Absolutely not. For one firefighter to go into a burning building, there needs to be someone who drove the fire engine. There needs to be someone else who filled in the requisition form to make sure that they had the right equipment with them. There needs to be someone else who raised the funds. There needs to be, for any person at that kind of, in a way, sharp end of the business, many other people. And so... In a movement like Extinction Rebellion, there are many people who do not wish and cannot, for many totally good reasons, put themselves at risk of arrest, but they can help. So, you know, if you're locked to two people blockading an, a doorway, and I've done this, you can't move, and the police can't lift you because it's too awkward and dangerous to lift two people who are locked together. They could injure you, and they're not allowed to. They're responsible for you if they arrest you. Um, so you're there for quite a long time, and you can't, it's your nose. And so there's someone who's there to give you a drink or provide a blanket or open the buttons on your shirt if it's too hot or scratch my nose. Can you scratch my nose? Of course they can't because they scratch the wrong place. And you say, okay, can you stick something towards my nose so I can scratch my nose? But it's like there are many different functions one can have. I have a friend who's, um, who, whose sister is, is not so well and can't go out of the house and she just she's making artwork in support of the rebellion because that's what she can do so it's much more it seems to me about listening feeling in our hearts what seems true for us and then being willing to follow our hearts and find ways to act and respond because i don't know what you should do i can't know but you can know and that's really what my call is this is for me about you know authenticity in life and in practice is where we see what we need to do and we find a way to align ourselves with that. And the risks and the vulnerabilities that might involve for some are much less than the distress when we come out of alignment with ourself. Martin Luther King said, Never be afraid to do what is right. The punishments of society are small compared to the wounds we inflict on our soul when we look the other way. We saw in England that the actions we've taken have profoundly shifted the conversation publicly, politically, and in the, in, the, in the scientific and business world. It's remarkable. Just as we may have seen that meditation practice can shift the inner environment, culture, and what is possible, so too, it seems to me, this kind of action can shift in the world things that haven't. And I, I can say more about that, but I want to conclude because I've been talking for a while. So, we understand, of course, that it's not about living forever, because as Dharma practitioners, we contemplate mortality. We know we're not going to live forever. No one's, our children weren't expecting to live forever. We weren't expecting them to live forever, though we might have wished. But there's something different when we look at actually not just the mortality of this being, or these beings, but actually the whole living system under threat. 
in that degree of danger. And one of the things that stands out for me there is it, it's not about how long we live or how long even this planet endures. Because, of course, one day, if nothing else, the sun will run out of um, you know, nuclei, nuclear fusion nuclear fusion fuel. I didn't know that was a tongue twister. But, um, and it will get cold. And then the planet won't be livable for us. Or it'll go the other way and it'll you know, supernova, and then the planet won't be level. So at some level, all of this comes to an end eventually. And there is no absolute reason why this particular living system should live its full natural years, because we also know many people, and that not everybody gets to live what we'd call a full life. The question isn't about how long we live, but the question is about how we live. How we live is the question of our life. And I'd like to read you a poem. No, that's not it. I'd like to read you a poem that arose from a conversation um, with a friend of mine. My wife and I were speaking with him. Um, he's a poet. And uh, we were talking about a phrase that Gail Bradbrook who was the, one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion News, Dr. Gail Bradbrook, she said, you know, the question, one of the questions that we're asking or needing to ask ourselves is, what does it mean to be a good ancestor? So here's a poem. It's entitled, The Good Ancestor, by Davrick Leggett. Did you, sorry, The Good Ancestor. Yeah. Every day I walk a hundred years to the hill where my great-great-granddaughter sits. I carry words of blessing and reach to touch her back. But feeling me near, she turns sad-eyed and heavy with grief. What was it like, she asks, when the great whales swam? When the birds sang you awake? When the rains came soft and the soil smelled sweet underfoot? and the blessings catch in my throat. On darker days she turns her famished face charred and eyes sunk in their bony orbits burn with curses. And the blessings froth at my mouth with the poisonous spume of betrayal. On the darkest of all days I walk the hundred years and find no one there. Let today be the bright day let today be the bright day I lay my hand upon her back and feeling me there she turns and blesses me saying your love was sweet enough sorry your love was fierce enough sweet ancestor your love was fierce enough So I'd just like to again invite you to pause and take a few breaths.
And I'd like to thank you for just being here to listen and take in what I wish to speak about and for staying with it even though it went longer than I thought. It's just after 7.30 now. I intended to finish a little before so that we'd have more time to speak, but there is time for some reflections, responses, questions, if you wish. And I'm aware that I don't know if everyone is able to stay through that time, but if you need to, as I said, use the bathroom or such thing, that's fine. Um, I'm not sure I'm offering final solutions in terms of responses, but I think my wish is to invite response. And so if you would like to, um, I'm very happy to hear responses, reflections, questions. question is mm. about how Extension Rebellion, if I said that right, deals with the issue of justice and specifically around um, a lot of the climate science talks about who will be affected yes. by climate change and disproportionate effects. So I thought it was really interesting when you drew the parallel between the civil rights movement and what motivated people who were being oppressed similar in India versus what might be happening in different contexts um, in developed countries or for people who protest with means. And I was just would love some like reflection on yeah. how you think of justice and um, particularly this approach of non-judgment and or not non-judgment, yeah. but love as approach and how that you yeah. confront justice and yeah. the injustice. I yeah. OK. So when I hear justice, there's two kind of pieces. One is actually holding accountability for what's going on in the places where there needs to be account held, but not out of a rejection or attacking or wish to uh, hurt anyone else. That 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 kind of that form of justice is about um, yeah some kind of equity. But there's also the whole issue of social justice is completely involved in this, and the, some of the underlying dynamics that lead to what we're doing to the ecology are simply expressions of what we've also been doing to various aspects and parts of our community, our human community, and and our, um, the other companions of our, our living system. And so um, one of the things in Extinction Rebellion we recognise, one of the ten principles, and I haven't, this is something I haven't gone into, is, is we, we seek to mitigate for power. It's a short form, which is we recognise that different people have different situa are situated differently according to the sort of structural and institutional discrimination and oppression that operates within our society, and that needs to be respected in how we operate. So, for instance, it's a much more straightforward thing for a, a white, cisgender, heterosexual, middle-class bloke to get arrested than for someone who doesn't have the privilege associated with all of those particular characteristics. I said I'm quarter-Indian, but obviously I, I pass, it seems, well, I do, as, um, as white um, and that. But I know what it is to not, because as a kid I was dark. It changed. It's kind of strange. But there it is. Um, and so we understand that Yes, I have privilege that I can use in this situation, which someone who may not have that privilege might choose a different path and would be encouraged and supported to. So, so that's one aspect of, and so we have, like, in terms of trying to really make sure that there is room for the voices of all, a full representation of the full width of and breadth and depth of our community. Um, but at the same time that 
the places they may choose to stand may vary according to their situation within our society. So that's one aspect of justice in terms of social justice. In terms of where we think justice hasn't punished the bad guys, that's a really interesting thing if we get into it because actually we have to punish ourselves because we are part of it. And actually freeing ourselves from that paradigm which comes out of a kind of a a Western um, sort of, and I don't know if it comes from the Judeo-Christianic tradition specifically or not. Um, again, it's one of those areas that I don't, you know, there's people here who will know more about this, um, for sure. But the tendency to um, kind of want to blame people and judge them for their action and punish them and believing that that's actually the appropriate way to deal with such things as opposed to from a Dharma point of view which says, oh, it's actually the action we address and we judge, not the person. And we kind of separate those out. So that when one wants to say no and stop to the action, and it's interesting, I, I, I did this movement and, and I was, um, you know, this is the basic posture for gluing yourself to a, a, a door. Um, you don't want to put it in an uncomfortable place because it's going to be there a while. Um, this is also the image you'll see. The Buddha sometimes doing this. This is the expression of the Buddha. The mudra, it's called the abhaya mudra, fearless mudra or courageous mudra, which is the expression of compassion in its sort of fierce form. It kind of, it's like, it represents saying stop or no. And the Buddha talks of it as the, um, the quality that a parent, well, classically it's a mother, but in the, in the text, mother, but it would be a parent standing at the door of a room. The child is inside. Someone is coming towards the room wishing to harm the child. And the parent's saying, no, you are not coming through that door. Nothing personal, actually, but you are not coming through that door and hurting my child. And that kind of fierceness of response to say no is, in a way, what is seen as needed rather than, and I'm going to punish you for wanting to hurt or having hurt my child as such. It's more like, I will stop this from continuing if I in any way possibly can. So that's the framework that I understand in terms of Extinction Rebellion. And and it takes a toxicity out of the process that's really remarkable how powerful it is. And it gives us all a voice. Because otherwise what happens when there's judging of people who do things wrong or bad, Thomas says, but, oh, did you drive in a fossil fuel-powered vehicle to come and talk to me about this? Says the the the, the, um, the CEO of the, the petroleum industry company. Well, you know, what voice have you got? It's like we have this historical tendency to dis, um, delegitimize the voice of someone who isn't completely pure on the topic. You know, let they who are without sin cast the first stone. And it's like, oh, but this isn't about blaming each other. It's not like I'm looking at you saying you're covered in soot and you're saying don't say that. You're covered in soot. I'm saying, hey, look at all the soot. It's choking us. What can we do about it? There's a lot in this room, there's a lot of wisdom, there's a lot of experience, there's a lot of good hearts, and um, and I'm sorry to have been remarkably unconcise in my speaking and responding, um, and uh, therefore we've run to the end of our time. And so I just want to say thank you for being interested in the conversation. Please continue the conversations. If anything I've said turns out to be not well spoken or um, accurately representing things that you come to discover, it's on me. Um, and uh, yeah, I uh, 
I'm grateful to have been able to have the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.